on 2FM. Sponsored by Dove Men Plus Care. Upgrade to Dove Men Advanced Deodorant and Body Wash. Let the confidence last. Game on. Weeknights from 6. On 2FM. Well, a big thanks to the two Johnnies for the afternoon entertainment. It is Wednesday, December 6th. I'm Shane Dawson and you are listening to Game On. Coming up between now and 7pm, David McMillan is in studio to chat Dundalk ownership and cast his eye over the midweek Premier League action alongside Fergal Brennan and will be crossing live to Peter Smith at Old Trafford. Colin McKees rounds up the latest Gaelic Games stories and Stephen Higgins chats tennis as we reflect on the big stories that dominated 2023. As always, if you want to have your say, drop us a text on 51552. Game on on 2FM. Yes, hello there. Good evening. Hope you're having a a wonderful Wednesday evening. David McMillan is sitting across me. David, how are you, sir? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. David, I think we have to start off in firstly uh, by saying a very happy three-year anniversary. Does that mean anything to you? I know you're going to be humble here, maybe. I saw the tweet today from James Rogers, three years since uh, a good cup win. A good cup win. For those that aren't aware, three years ago today, Dundalk were FAI Cup winners under Filippo Giovinoli as a David McMillan hat-trick helped the Lily Whites to a 4-2 win over Shamrock Rovers after uh, extra time in an empty Aviva Stadium, those COVID days. And yeah, hat tip to James Rogers because I'm after reading out his tweet verbatim there. So... um, a good day to say the least for you? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think I had a Dundalk fan tell me I was the unluckiest man alive to score a hat-trick in an empty stadium. I didn't really see it that way at the time. <laughs> the empty stadium made no difference to me, but uh, yeah, brilliant day, definitely. And what, what was one it like? Of my, probably one of my best memories in football. Yeah, your best memories in football in front of it, no fans. Yeah, a weird one. Um, but look, that was just, it seemed normal at the time. I think everybody felt it was normal at the time. And looking back now, watching it, it's a little bit different. You're like, yeah, it's a bit weird. But uh, yeah, at the time, it felt totally normal. Yeah, no, it is. I couldn't wrap my head around it. But um, yeah, well, c- congratulations. Happy three-year anniversary. <laughs> um, there were a few fans in Windsor Park last night, um, close to 10,000, which was great to see uh, as Ireland rounded off their, their Women's Nations League campaign. Six wins from six. How impressed have you been with the, the girls in green in, that, in this campaign? Yeah, I think they were probably, um, you know, since the World Cup and uh, the exit of era, it's been a, and they've been quite outspoken. There seemed mm. to be a bit of pressure on the women's team, but boy, have they answered it. You know, they've six wins from six, topped our group, promoted into the the, the, the A mm. uh, group in the Nations League, and now can really look forward to the spring and getting going in, their, in the Euro qualifiers. So it's been a brilliant job, and um, you can't ask for a better response. Um, then six wins from six absolutely will be interesting to see who does get the uh, permanent role as uh, women's team manager and indeed men's national team manager as well we might have white smoke before Christmas um, is the soundings from the FEI um, so from no fans to 10,000 fans to a few more thousand expected at Old Trafford this evening Peter Smith is there for us Peter you're not one of the unlucky few that have been barred from Old Trafford <laughs> I might have been in my pomp and prime <laughs> a year or two or three ago, but no, I'm here and um, clear of any offences as yet. Although one or two might unfold in the next couple of minutes, depending on what you ask me. <laughs> Indeed. Um, what is the atmosphere at, at Old Trafford like, or what is, are you expecting it to be like uh, this evening? Given, I know, listen, there's a couple of media bands that I kind of made made light of there but just in general with the fans towards this team who I suppose it's doing them 
no disservice to say they haven't really been giving it their all. No, they haven't. And there's an argument. Why does such a mediocre football team get so much attention and lead to the sort of bans that certain journalists have had to undergo over the last 24 stroke 48 hours? I mean, this is a media. It only needs one more United defeat in the calendar year of 2023, which will be the worst since 1989. So it just goes to show just how poor a United side this is. And when this football team doesn't perform, there's massive scrutiny, you know, across the world. We're talking about a global game now. I was around in 1989. I saw that rubbish football, uh, and there was plenty of national scrutiny then. You know, obviously it's been multiplied so much over the years with the growth of the media. But I honestly don't think that it's a good idea banning journalists, you know, and making a point of them. I think it's a retrograde step because all... I've been there many, many times in my working life. All that happens is those who have been offended crank it up. Now, if you're the manager of Manchester United, you're the manager of Liverpool, Glasgow Rangers, Glasgow Celtic, if you win every single game as a manager and win every trophy that you enter and play football akin to Brazil 1970 and Holland 1974, you won't have a problem. Anything less, and sometimes people voice opinions and people have views, you know, and when managers start taking umbrage and when big organisations get pushed out, and I know myself, speaking from personal experience, listen, not so much here, well, once or twice here, but in other parts of the northwest, when I've been kicked... You know, I lie low a little bit, maybe kick a little bit back and get my own back. Or, you know, it, it, it becomes a problem. You know, um, I remember a national newspaper here uh, way back in 99 that fell out massively with a football club. And it really, really got unpleasant. And the newspaper didn't lose, by the way. The newspaper just cranked out more and more nasty stories. Um, and it goes on and on and on, you know. So banning journalists is nothing new. Like I said earlier, the best way to remedy it is win games of football. And if you win games of football, you won't be getting the types of criticisms that have been aired since that pretty shambolic performance against Newcastle last weekend. Absolutely. I do want to talk about the football, but just final question on this kind of the, the banning of the journalists. Is this time around, does it feel a bit different? I know Alex Ferguson and, you know, it kind of often happened in, in his tenure, but does it feel a bit different? Is it a bit more pointed this time or is it no, no it doesn't matter anymore you know it, what are you losing these days right when i when i started out in journalism in manchester in the late 1980s you know you would have your own access to the manager you would have your own access to players if that door was shut then you didn't get anything if you will uh nowadays it's all in one isn't it you know, you can have this one conference for dozens and sometimes hundreds, and sometimes hundreds and hundreds of people, depending on on the conference and, and the game and how many overseas media people are there. I mean, what, what are you missing by not attending a press conference these days? You know, somebody else is going to get it. It's going to be elsewhere. You're not going to miss anything, are you not? You might be behind by a minute or two. You know, you, you can't enter the Premier League press conference. I'll just sit at home and watch it all unfold on X or Twitter or whatever we call it these days. You know, or your mate will give it to you. Or you, you, you. Honestly, you're not missing an awful lot by not attending a Premier League press conference. You might have done it in the 1980s or the early 1990s, but you're not doing any more. And all you'll do is sit and brood, and then one of your contacts will come on to you with a mischievous story, or an agent that you're in with will bend your ear on something that's allegedly going on from a disgruntled player. You know, and, and then you'll run a story that, again, doesn't go down one. It goes on and on and on and on. Listen, it's part of 21st century 
life. You know, there's more to it these days. The fact that we've got social media and it's it's like New York, isn't it? It never, ever sleeps. Never really slept back in the 80s and 90s. You know, there was always a, a massive, massive, massive interest in a Manchester United story. A Manchester United story is the biggest, probably, on the planet. Maybe Real Madrid and Barcelona might have something to say about that. And obviously in Glasgow, the old firm, Rangers and Celtic, huge, huge stories. Liverpool's a huge story. But Manchester United is probably the biggest story on the planet, you know, and it's not going to quieten down from this point onwards, is it? That's for sure. No, it most certainly is not. If I welcome another journalist into the conversation, Fergal Brandon, um, do you feel this is going to just add unnecessary pressure onto Eric Ten Hag and his players? Certainly, uh, and, and I'd agree with the bulk of what Peter has just said, particularly in relation to how press conferences uh, work in reality in, in 2023. Um, and, and Eric Ten Hag, even in his speech yesterday when he was obviously asked the pointed question about the specific journalists representing specific newspapers or, or, or news organisations, it wasn't particularly convincing. He, he kind of gave a bit of a, a half answer and, and effectively just laid bare what everybody already knew, which was he feels under pressure. He thinks that if he kind of tightens his circle in relation to the players, coaching staff, club officials and, and media that he feels is maybe a bit more preferable towards what he's trying to do, then that will help him. Um, that, that doesn't work unless one of the journalists that is in a press conference can can play up front for them tonight, that, that's not going to help the situation. Um, he, he is in trouble. Um, according to the latest, latest bookie odds, he's the most likely next Premier League manager to be sacked. I, I would take that with a little bit of salt, but he's definitely under big pressure because United are way off where they would be anticipating to be at this point of the season. 12 points behind Arsenal in the Premier League title race probably 95% going to get knocked out of the Champions League before the end of 2023. Um, and he and he, and he he doesn't seem to be able to get a handle on this without going into too much depth. I think there are still fundamental issues at the club and there are issues within the playing squad. Um, we, we don't have time to get into too much depth on that this evening. But ultimately, when it comes to Manchester United in the post-Sir Alex Ferguson era, it's the manager that takes the fall for this. And he, he really needs something special in the next few weeks to keep himself in a job otherwise there could be a major change before the end of the year David as a, a former professional footballer like I don't expect you to name names here but if, if you saw any of your teammates not putting it in on during matches or, or even in training as well surely there would be a leadership group a senior group that would, would have a word or you'd, you'd try and rectify it yourselves like I, I can't wrap my head around how these players just aren't giving it their all yeah, it's a, it's a tough one for Ten Hag. I actually like a lot of what he's done. I think his his only downfall probably has been his signings, maybe. There's one or two haven't quite worked out. But if I was higher up at Man United and I was thinking, who do I keep on here, these players or this manager, I would certainly be back in the manager. I think I'd like to see him stay on and keep going until at least January, where if you look at what they did in the summer, trying to get rid of numerous players that he wanted rid of and the club couldn't get rid of them, mm. I don't know how you put that on the manager. It's difficult. He, he's obviously aimed for targets. Well, one, to get rid of people before you can often sign players and they weren't able to do that. And I think that's partly on the club, particularly if you look at contracts they've offered players who haven't done the business for them for years. Um, in terms of being in a dressing room and players aren't pulling their weight, there'll definitely be players there um, who will have conversations among themselves, among the group, trying to G people up, trying to get the group going. But it doesn't take many bad eggs to make a bad dressing room. It, it, you know, if there's two or three that are disruptive, 
um, that can affect the whole thing and I think in fairness to Ten Hag he's been really tough he's, he's told Sancho obviously to stay away from mm. training stay away from the group he's not part of the group anymore some players might be friends with him and mightn't like that but we saw it with Arteta he was under pressure he got rid of Ozil he got rid of Aubameyang it came good for him they're top of the league five points clear the club really backed him United can keep sacking managers but at some point they've got to decide of the four or five they've had since Ferguson like one of them you know you got to stick with one of them and, mm. and, and you know back your manager get rid of the players he wants to get rid of bring in more targets as I said the one criticism of him is probably his signings haven't been you know haven't worked out as well um, and that is on him but everything else I think the club needs to take responsibility for and certainly the players need to take responsibility for Is that the only way you resolve it just just clearing out the players that at this stage you think they're gone beyond having a word or like trying well, to I think it becomes really difficult you you look at Ten Hag's position you obviously want to be rid of the likes of Maguire and McTominay they mm. don't go you then have to try and speak to those players and get the maximum for them even if I think you look at Maguire he, he wants to perform for himself Um but there must be an element there of this manager wanted to get rid of me and I'm still here you know he wants me to try from but I know really he wants rid of me so that's a really tricky situation to be in and I think the club have obviously not managed as I said to get rid of those players now Ten Hag has to work with them um, they know realistically the manager doesn't want them there and actually one or two of them have done quite well McTominay's done alright for him he's scored quite a few goals he's rescued the team on occasions Um so I think those players he's actually tried to get rid of some of them have, have actually done okay for him but mm. ultimately you've got to back him and try and get rid of those players that he wants rid of the players that haven't done the business for him and, and try and bring in new players and freshen it up again and I do think he's a good manager I think he's the right man for the job I think it's just a really difficult situation that they're all in and you see obviously I think the journalists have been uh, not invited into the press conference due to the fact that they weren't the club weren't given the right to reply and it was all to do with players going to journalists about not liking Ten Hag's style all this kind of stuff like if you're Ten Hag you're in a really difficult corner there you have to be able to, to clear out what you need to clear out and I'm sure he has a very clear vision of, of what he needs to do in January and next summer if he's there if he's there is the big if um, Peter Smith if I come back to yourself before we let you go and enjoy Old Trafford this evening um, final question on this what are you expecting from the 90 plus minutes of football you're about to witness <laughs> can I just make a, a quick point before I talk about the 90 yeah. minutes of football um, on this the journalists should ring the media department and get these stories cleared up or very listen that does not work at all because if you if you have a story you know, uh, something like that. Very uh, many, many times in my working life, I, I, I've picked up on things or I've had things, and you, and you, you run it by a club media department, and one or two things happens: a, they say no, it's not true, and then so you report it that it's not true, and then it is true, and then you look absolutely stupid. Or b, it ends up on the club website because they weren't aware of it, and you've got it ahead of them. You know, it, it, that that sort of thing does not work. If you've got something contentious like that, you know, you, you don't get anybody in Premier League media departments to go, oh, no, 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 it's not true. You know, or, or don't report it because it's a disgruntled player speaking via his agent. Um, it, it, it doesn't happen. It, it doesn't. Happen. And, and secondly, as well, Tenor could be a little bit more courteous with the media. You know, what about the Mason Greenwood? What, the way he behaved after that? You know, he could have said, "Gentlemen, you know, please, I, I can't say anything about it," or some sort of answer that's decent rather than "I'm talking about the players I'm picking." You know, and and fobbing people off like that. You know, you know, it's um, sometimes football clubs and managers can be a lot more helpful and receptive. It's, it's a game. It's a daft game. I played it for years and I how to play it. You know, and sometimes. 
media departments can help, football clubs can help, and we can have a far more harmonious relationship. As regards the game, well, there's been 26 draws in the Premier League between Manchester United and Chelsea, uh, the most draws in any fixture in Premier League history, and uh, I'm going to go for a draw tonight, I'm going to make it 27. I think Chelsea probably would be happy with it, their record here at Old Trafford is not particularly good, they've not won here since May 2013, they've drawn six and lost four in these sequences in between, so I'm going to go for another draw, hopefully high scoring draw, hopefully that we'll have a great game of football and that will take the post much attention rather than anything else here's hoping listen Peter Smith gentlemen as always really appreciate you uh, taking the call uh, enjoy uh, Old Trafford this evening um, that one kicks off at 8.15 as does Aston Villa and Manchester City Fergal Brennan what is going to be um, the primary factor in deciding the outcome of this match I think Pep Guardiola has done the same thing that he does before most matches where it could be potentially a little bit of a tricky issue for him and he's praised the opposition manager in Unai Emery and Aston Villa and, and everything that Emery has done and I think most of us this season have been quite impressed with with what Unai Emery has done he's built on the positive uh, finish that they had to last season he's made them into quite an exciting team to watch a little bit high wire at times in terms of the defensive line and the fact that he wants to push up the pitch and get themselves uh, involved and, and squeeze the game into quite a compartmentalised area I just think City's quality will be the will be the key aspect uh, of this. The, the only maybe little window that I would give Aston Villa, and I don't mean that to be disrespectful, they are at home and they have done well this season. Is no Rodri um, for City? We've seen this season when he's been suspended before. He's he's out tonight because he's picked up five Premier League red uh, yellow cards even, and when he's not there, they are a different beast. You, you see that teams are able to play through the midfield easier if one of the forward three or four players gives the ball away suddenly if you're sharp and you're quick you can be at the City back line much much more fa- much faster than you would be when Rodri is there um, so I don't think this will be an easy one for City but I would I would still bank on them winning particularly because obviously Arsenal winning away at Luton last night that means that they've got a bit of an edge on City now and City need to react David would you be concerned if you were a Manchester City fan that they're not grinding out the victories that they have been in recent seasons or would you be kind of just back your head listen bit of patience we're okay we know how to win leagues and we we will see it out No I think I think they've they've had three draws in the Premier League in a row which is for the standards they've set seems really poor and then you look at the games they were they were against Spurs Liverpool and Chelsea so um yeah, it's a bad run of form for City, but in reality, uh, they're still in, in great shape and in a great position. It is a tricky game today. I think Villa at home particularly have been very, very strong. So um, I actually think it'd be a really entertaining game, probably the game to watch tonight. But um, yeah, it's it's funny what uh, Fergal said there. Pep does often come out and praise the manager he's, he's, he's coming up against if he thinks it's a tricky game. But in fairness, Unai Emery has sit, Aston Villa sitting in the Champions League spots. He's done an amazing job and... Um, they go out kind of today probably play freely and it's a, it's a kind of shot to nothing for them because they're mm. in such good form so it is a tricky game for City and as as, as Ferg said without, without Rodri there um, I would expect City to win but it wouldn't surprise me to see a, a draw or, or a Villa pull off a win even Staying uh, on the topic of managers uh, Fergal Brennan Chris Wilder is back at Sheffield United and he's brought Keith Andrews along for a ride as well they host Liverpool will Sheffield United have that bit of a new manager boost? Potentially, um, I've been speaking to a few Liverpool fans over the last couple of days, and, and they've said it's kind of 
tough luck for them that they'd hoped that Heckenbottom would have stayed in for another week because if they were going to, to Bramall Lane tonight in that sort of a situation they'd be super confident now the wilder factor um, completely changes that and kind of shield rattling in his first press conference as he's come back and kind of talking to the home fans telling them to be there in numbers tonight play, make plenty of noise make it difficult and uncomfortable for Liverpool all the things that you'd you'd anticipate if you were welcoming in or hoping for a new manager bounce um, the, the only thing within this similarly to Manchester City that they're, they're playing a Liverpool team that are banging form and that have also shown that if they do fall behind if they are struggling to get a bit of rhythm and a bit of momentum they can pull something out of the bag we saw that at Fulham or sorry at home to Fulham at the weekend weekend where they probably weren't at their free-flowing best but a little moment of magic or, or an opportunity for, for one of their important players and they do manage to turn the tide I'll be interested to see what Chris Wilder does with Sheffield United because he's said that his relationship with the owner has now been fixed that's been fixed for a while it was very tense between the two of them when he initially left the club um, in the past having done a really really good job in their first season uh, in, in the Premier League under his management in terms of tonight, I, I still think Liverpool will edge it just because of that quality that they have and the form that they're in. Um, but I think Chris Wilder for Sheffield United, he'll he'll certainly stabilise them. He'll, he'll inject a bit more life into them, but they need a goal scorer in January or they need to find a goal scorer within the squad because at the moment, they just don't have it. Fergal, just staying with yourself there. Um, so Sheffield United obviously changed their manager, Burnley are sticking with Vincent Company for now. They lost 1-0 last night to Wolves. Do you see Vincent Company seeing out the season at Burnley? Probably not. Uh, I said it on Friday that whoever lost in the Burnley-Sheffield United game would lose their job and that was the case with Heckenbottom. I did think Company going into that was under a bit more pressure because of how well seen he is by Burnley fans but then they've, they've just gone two steps backwards by losing last night. Uh, I think he might get a little bit longer Um but given the fact that the results are just not matching this kind of grand plan of the football that he wants to play and the tactics that he wants to deploy, uh, he's definitely on that list that could be maybe not before Christmas, um, but if things are really bad by Christmas or by the end of the year, January. Okay, will be interesting to see. Um, speaking of last night as well, David, um, Arsenal had a big win over Luton 4-3, a last-minute uh, Declan Rice goal, uh, rescued uh, the three points for Arsenal. How big of a moment do you think that will be for Arsenal's season, the, the manner of that victory? Yeah, I think teams that often go on to win the league, they, they score late, mm. a lot of late goals, um, the old Fergie time. It was a big moment, I think, for Arsenal. You know, obviously conceding the title so badly last year um, they've obviously gone out and spent big on, on Havertz they've gone out and spent big on Rice um, two players who, who bagged goals for them last night and to do it so so late in the game 96 plus I think uh, minutes a big big goal for them and and it's always good as a as a player if you're playing the night before you win you're sitting top the only thing that can happen is teams can drop points tonight if they all win so be it you're still top mm. so they're in a really good position tonight Um but yeah, a couple of late goals in, in games this season that just kind of maybe show their mentality is, is right this year, that they could actually go right to the wire and and um, and challenge for it. And it's actually set up to be, as it is at the moment, set up to look like it's going to be a brilliant season. There's a lot of teams, certainly the top three at the moment, look like they could compete all the way. And, and hopefully they do. It'll be really entertaining. Hopefully it is a, a cracking title race. A Fergal, final word on our Premier League chat to you just on last night as well. So that's the positives that David has uh, outlined for Arsenal. The negatives, David Rea has conceded uh, two soft goals again. What would you do if you were Mikel Arteta with this goalkeeping situation? 
Uh, I'd stop giving kind of complex answers in press conferences when he's asked about it. He had an opportunity when David Raya came in to nip this in the bud and just say, we have two excellent goalkeepers uh, and they'll be competing for places and leave it at that. But he's tried to kind of overcomplicate the situation by questioning this idea of, well, why can't I make changes with goalkeepers if I want to sub a goalkeeper off in the same way I'd sub a striker off? I should be allowed to do that. I mean, David's in a much stronger position than me to comment on this, but even within the kind of elite level of coaching where there is flexibility and there is that scope to change things, goalkeeper is still a very specific position. It relies a lot on confidence. It relies a lot on momentum um, and, and mistakes, goals conceded do eat away at that. If he just simply said, we've got the two of them, we've got a long season ahead, we're fighting across four fronts, case closed I'll pick the team that I think is best for certain games I think a lot of this would have been laid to rest but he's deliberately trying to kind of put out there that don't question what I'm doing I think this is the best way of doing it if I want to play this player here if I want to sub him on sub him off then I will Um, and because of that he's now created a problem for himself personally I do think David Rye is a a bit better than Aaron Ramsdale certainly in terms of what Arsenal want to do I don't think there's a huge difference between them um, Aaron Ramsdale was excellent for Arsenal last season but now this problem has now been created because I'm not in favour of David Raya being dropped just because he let in two soft goals but the kind of sensationalism that will be around this will be calling for Aaron Ramsdale to replace him I don't think that will be the case Arsenal play Aston Villa on Saturday I'd be shocked if David Raya is not in goal because he clearly is the number one put choice I just think Arteta's made this much much more difficult for himself than it needed to be and when they're trying to win games or win trophies you don't need any more complications I know you played up top David but a situation like that would that breed frustration among the, the outfield players as well? Yeah I think so As a, even as your centre halves you want to trust mm. your goalkeeper with everything and if they're letting in soft goals it can it can ebb away confidence you won't see them score late goals like that every week you can do it a couple of times a season but you don't want to be in that position particularly because of goalkeeper's mistakes Um your team needs to have confidence in your goalkeeper, and it, it, it the manager has probably put both keepers under pressure. Like I watched Ramsdale the other week, a couple of weeks ago against Brentford, and he nearly made a howl of a mistake. It wasn't something you were seeing him do last season. They're probably both feeling a little bit of pressure because of the situation, and um, I don't think it's helping either of them. So it's not ideal. I think um, Fergal's right. I think Raya will stay in goal because I, he obviously believes this is number one. But I think if you're going to replace Ramsdale at the beginning of the year, you got to really replace him with someone you feel is well better than him yeah. um, comes straight in there's no question marks I don't see much difference between the two I think Ramsdale's brilliant with his feet I remember going to a live game last year and just amazed at how well he could make passes from the back that's obviously the way the Arsenal want to play so then you're questioning he obviously doesn't believe he's a great shot stopper you know good coming for crosses I'm not sure Raya particularly if you watched him last night has proven any better so it's a bit of an odd one um, but look Arsenal going so well that's probably their only sticking point at the moment so if they can get that right they'll be in good shape Okay, good stuff Fergal Brennan thank you very much uh, for taking the call David you're sticking around because I do want to uh, throw a few questions to you on Dundalk's new ownership team news in for this evening also Palace Bournemouth Bournemouth play this evening as do Fulham and Nottingham Forest and Brighton Brentford three Irishmen on the bench for Brighton Evan Ferguson uh, Mark O'Mahony and Lee Kavanagh so who knows we might see some Irish uh, in action at Brentford and 
unsurprisingly, Cuevin Gallagher uh, starts for Liverpool against Sheffield United. Um, okay, Dundalk's new owner. Brian Ainscoff says it is his intention to bring additional investors into the club alongside him to help push Dundalk forward on and off the field. The uh, Dublin native based in Boston concluded his takeover from Sean O'Connor, Alan Clark and Andy Connolly uh, but admitted he had already been talking with others about getting involved. Um, Given your connection with the club, you had a very successful uh, couple of stints uh, at Dundalk. What did you make of this takeover? Good or bad? I think in the end I think the takeover just had to happen um, obviously Stat Sports Andy Connolly went back into the club and um, I think the expectation was they'd be there for the long run I think mm. the, the, the support in general were delighted to have local people back in control of the club after what was a difficult enough finish to the peak six time there and um, look it hasn't worked out I think in fairness to, to the Stat Sports lads they've they wanted to offload the club obviously felt they couldn't do what they had promised or, or thought they would be able to do and um, and Brian Ainscoff has come in um, you, you just in League of Ireland new ownership it's you never know you just don't know what's going to come next and um, you know I've watched his interviews and press conferences I think he's he's, he's saying the right things uh, my slight concern is you're taking over 100% of the club 100% ownership of the club and yet you're still looking for investors so there's a little bit of a question mark there um, now they did say that the new investment they would look to be put that into the academy and stadium and things like that so perhaps he feels look I've got the resources to, to look after the first team squad and anything after that is to help you know build the mm. club around that so hopefully that is the case and I think for Stephen O'Donnell just he'll be just happy that ownership issue is put to bed he can go has a budget he can go and speak to players there'll be players who were there last year who are in limbo you know, some have left already, and that's the, that's the issue. The ownership um, changeover has caused. You've lost the likes of Daniel Kelly, um, but if they've still got some top quality players there, you know, Hoban obviously controversial one, but still under contract there. Yeah. If they want to keep him, obviously they'll be able to do that, um, and hopefully they can sort that out and he can stay. Um, you know, they've still got Daryl Horgan, Ryan O'Kane. They've got a lot of attacking talent there, so I think the club's still in a good position. Hopefully now this settles the ownership. Um, you know, obviously, I think Brian is based in America, but he, he intends to spend a lot of time back and forth in in Dundalk, and um, I'm sure he'll communicate well with fans. Hopefully, he does, and and the club will, you know, the supporters can get behind the club, and and they can have a positive 2024. Certainly, saying all the right things, um, some really positive sound bites, and and he's he's kind of treating the media exactly how, um, I suppose he would have wanted to, um, in terms of the story getting out there. If you're a Kerry fan, I'd say you'd be rightly at how this has played out given how quick he has just jumped ship now I know he's kind of said Dundalk are like a decade ahead of Kerry in terms of their um, journey in, in League of Ireland football which is true Kerry are only in their infancy and we've seen that the highs that Dundalk have reached would you be concerned if you're a Dundalk fan out that this man now has a 100% ownership of your club and he has just gone from Kerry like that already yeah, I think that's probably the one concern. As I said, it's so hard to know with uh, with new owners in any League of Ireland club. Um, there's positives and negatives to that from a dog point of view, I suppose. Obviously, you're right. I'm sure Kerry fans are a little bit peeved that he has jumped mm. ship. Uh, he obviously felt it was too good an opportunity to turn down. Watching his interview, he seemed to be... He was speaking almost like a player, as a competitive guy. He felt this move was too good for him not to take it, um, which I thought was interesting. But um, you would have a side concern if something did pop up that was he felt was uh, better than the duck would he jump ship but um, 
Well, he's obviously an Irish guy he's from Dublin. He, he obviously wants to be involved in League of Ireland. He mentioned he hopes he'll be there for a decade. Only time will tell. We have to wait and see. And um, you know, words can be cheap sometimes. And people say that promise things that won't happen. I don't think he's overly promised anything. You know, he's not saying he's going to turn the ground around tomorrow and make it into a ten thousand seater stadium. He's talking about small improvements, cosmetic changes to begin with, and and hopefully the club can build on that. So I think in that regard, he's he's not making swashbuckling comments and promises that you know won't pull the wool over people's eyes. Mm. You know, I think he's making realistic, you know, um, targets. Targets, yeah, yeah, exactly. They're, they're realistic targets. You know, he's he's not setting anything too high, high in the sky and. Um, yeah, I think fans will will greet that well, and and hopefully when they get an opportunity to meet him and speak to him, and uh, hopefully he comes across well, and, and and they're happy. And the main thing is that the supporters get behind the club. It's a real football town. They're passionate people. They want the team to do really well. They've had unbelievable success for ten years. It's slightly come off that, but there's still a lot of good things there that that the club can build on. How important is that solid foundation? Because surely, if there is instability in ownerships, perhaps we've seen it in, in the peak six days as well. That must trickle down to, to the players it does I think what I'm talk, I think probably Stephen O'Donnell deserves credit last year I don't think I even realised realised it probably at the end of the year how much it was the ownership issue was probably affecting players was affecting the manager mm. uh, was affecting people behind the scenes but they managed to deal with that quite well I think up until maybe you know the last week or two of the season I think the club managed that way I don't think people realised how difficult it was behind the scenes so um, I think from the manager's perspective Hopefully he has a brilliant relationship with the new owner and they get on well. That's that's a key element to it. Um, listening to Brian, it seems like they, they've met numerous times and and he's given them a budget and hopefully it's it's what uh, you know O'Donnell expects it to be. And he's such a young manager, he's a good manager, and and it seems the two of them are getting on well as things stand. So hopefully that's the case. And uh, you got to credit O'Donnell because a lot of people might have walked away when mm-hmm. when things became tricky. Um, you know he's probably taken some some criticism. Uh, unduly because the ownership's nothing to do with him he's there as the manager but he's stuck by the club made a big decision to go there in the first place um, when things have gotten tricky at the end of last season with the ownership he stood there he stayed he's taken flack for it in terms of he's been the voice for the ownership at times which isn't his job in reality so I think he deserves credit for that and um, I hope the people that don't talk they, they know he's a legend up there as a player but hopefully they get behind him and get behind the team Absolutely will be interesting to see how next season plays out for them the fixtures out December 15 I think nine days uh, from now so I'm sure League of Ireland fans already have that penciled in the diary um, David listen thank you and uh, congrats again happy three year anniversary to the hat-trick in the FBI Cup final um, pleasure chatting we are going to continue our chat we're going to turn to Gaelic Games and finish up with tennis so lots more to come on Game On stick with us here on 2FM 2FM on 2FM. Sponsored by Dove Men Plus Care. Upgrade to Dove Men 72-hour advanced deodorant. Tough on sweat, not on skin. Game on. GAA. Now I'm delighted to say that Colm Keyes, Gaelic Games correspondent with the Irish Independent, is on the line now because, Colm, there is news today of new Allianz Hurling League structures for 2025. What is happening with the Hurling League? Uh, good evening, Shane. It's uh, yeah. This has been well flagged. Uh, the hurling league uh, has probably been labouring a little bit. The uh, the absence of jeopardy over the last number of years um, has made it probably an armchair ride for the better for the better teams uh, in in the certainly in the top divisions. Uh, but it's moving to five 
seven team groups in 2025 uh, with two up, two down promotion uh, from each division. So obviously the top, the top group, Division 1A will be uh, contain most of the best teams, but two of them will drop out of Division 1, so out of the top flight. So that will add uh, much more jeopardy that has been there in the past, uh, in the past few years. And it should certainly incentivize teams to do a little bit better. I don't think it'll it'll match the football league for competitiveness or anything like that. And there's a reason, maybe too, in that the 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 round robin championship groups are very intensive. By uh, come the third weekend in April, certainly in Munster and even even in Leinster, there is a competitive edge there. So it was a desire of managers certainly in the past to have an easier league pathway, but I think it became too easy. Uh, and now the seven-team group certainly sharpens that edge. It will mean that there will be one bye weekend, obviously, uh, for every county in every division. But I do feel it will sharpen it. Certainly the two up, two down incentivizes uh, league hurling teams much more. Okay, so that's the, the, the hurling league structure. The master fixture plan was also released today. What were the, the standout points for you from that? Well, I suppose it's pretty similar in terms of time frame, uh, or should I say absence of time uh, <laughs> with the calendar because because the dates are firmly fixed for the All Ireland hurling for the All Ireland football final to finish the intercounty season on the last Sunday in July. That means that everything must be fitted in to the same schedule of time as last year. So there really is no give or take here, much similar to last year. Uh, the end of the league, the league finals on the 31st, the 30th and the 31st of March will be played a week before the championship. Now that could leave some teams as last year, obviously Mayo were league champions and seven days later they went out and played Ross Common in, the, in, the, in their Connacht quarterfinal, lost. If they reach a league final again, they're out the following week uh, in New York. So... Galway are out the following week if they reach a league final and they obviously contested the league final similar to last year they will be out in London six days later so there is no relaxation there are no uh, there's no chinks in the calendar whatsoever or breaks that will allow some any element of relaxation it starts on the last weekend in January and it continues right to the end of July with little room for manoeuvre. And that was the choice of counties. The choice was put to them during the summer. Do you want to retain the league finals? And overwhelmingly, they decided they wanted to keep them uh, at Central Council. Maybe the mood in the counties was a little bit different, but I do feel it's something. It's such a pinch point, and there are so many pinch points in the in the inter-county calendar now with the split season and with the requirement to finish by the end of July that I do think it's something that is going to be revisited. But there was a couple of initiatives uh, brought forward. One is that the Division 2, the last round of Division 2 games in the league uh, in round 7 on the weekend on Saturday, the 23rd of March, they'll be played on a Saturday as standalone games at 7 o'clock. So that's a break with tradition. All of the games inevitably took place. The last round of the league took place on a Sunday afternoon, but this has changed and that will allow for further TV viewing and especially with Division 2, with the, uh, I suppose, the gravity of finishing in places in Division 2 to that determines championship status. And obviously, if you finish fifth or certainly sixth in Division 2, you're in jeopardy of playing Tolchin Cup unless you reach your provincial final. So the importance of status and the importance of Division 2, and it's been singled out for Saturday night 
in March. That makes it, that's something different. And it's a new initiative, which I feel will continue from now on. Okay. It'll be interesting to see how that one does go. Um, expenses for inter-county teams seems to be dominating headlines now as well. They just continue to rise. Are, are we going to reach a breaking point at some stage soon? I think so. I think there's only so much that counties can raise and I think there's only so much that can trickle down from central funds for all of this. But as far as I can see, there's a, another lift from anything between 10 and 20%. In most counties, not all, Offaly have taken their team admis- administration spend down. But you look at Galway, you know, two flag- flagship teams, uh, the footballers and hurlers of Galway, 2.45 million um, that was in the published accounts earlier this week. That doesn't include a, a holiday team fund for the footballers of almost 200,000 as well. When you add that together, you're up to about 2.6 million for teams in, in Galway, which is very, very substantial figure. Kerry up to 1.7, Wexford up to 1.2. A lot of counties are have gone through the million euro barrier. And last year, the, the total spend, all of it spend on team preparations and this this isn't just the senior teams this is under 20 minor development squads it was 32.5 million so that was averaging over a million euro per county I would think it would be above 35 million when the final figure would be calculated this year so it's it's rising steadily I would think it has probably doubled in the decade from where it was most teams are running most county boards are running surpluses so they're they're okay for now but there's only so many houses you're going to be able to raffle. There's only so many of these fundraisers. Commercially, you'd wonder how long will sponsors, uh, how long will sponsors stick with this? And you also have to look and uh, look ahead and see that integration is coming down the road too with ladies uh, at the LGFA and Camogie Association. How far that will be, uh, we don't know. But certainly in terms of equality, the ladies and camogie teams will be entitled to much the same outlay. It may not, it may not happen, but if equality, if it's true equality, then there's symmetry there. They must be entitled to the same level of expenses, the same outlay for backroom, for medical, all of that. So uh, I think a lot of boards, a lot of counties are going to have to find a lot of money in the coming years, even more than what they're finding at the moment. So there will be stress points. There certainly will. Um, I appreciate we don't have too much time to probably delve into a conversation that could take 10 hours, never mind a couple of minutes, but the GAA Go controversy rumbles on, Colin Keyes. It certainly did, Shane, and you think, you know, they launched their schedule and their early purchase uh, reduction uh, earlier this week, and you would think, you know, around the launch, there's never much to, never too much about it. It's really when, it's really when uh, viewers don't have access to the games in April and May that this really kicks off, but it certainly kicked off last Monday uh, and the usual blizzard of complaints about it. And while some of it is justified and if you're a cork hurler or cork hurling supporter and three of the games are on GA Go, you'll feel a little bit disgruntled perhaps, but the GA will say that two of these games would not have been shown in any pre-GA Go scenario and that these are pickups and otherwise they would have gone dark so in other words RTE are making other choices maybe Leinster Hurling there's also a big football constituency out there and while the Munster Hurling Championship and to a lesser degree the Leinster Hurling Championship 
are the blue ribbon events of the early part of the championship season. There is a constituency out there that will want to see football games, even if even if they're bad football games, and presumably they will be. But you know, there's there's obviously a balance to be struck. And further to our previous conversation, there is revenue raising concerns, and obviously Donald Cusick made his point that you know hurling the, the GA are coining off hurling. Well, prob- yes, they are because. There are a lot of bills to pay. Mm. And there's a balance there, obviously, between the promotion of hurling and revenue raising. And that balance has probably yet to find its sweet spot, but I'm sure I'm sure it will. But the idea of a paywall for championship games, it's been there for a long time with Sky. I think the, probably the bigger issue maybe is the broadband coverage in rural areas for people who, no matter what they pay, they can't access it. But look, it's it's something that's not going to go away. Either way, the controversy will be there, but I think pay-per-view for championship games will be there too because the GA must find as much revenue streams because of what we said beforehand in our previous segment of conversation as well. Absolutely. Behind the paywall, Gaelic Games is here to say for the foreseeable. For now, Colin Keyes uh, of the Irish Independent, thank you very much for taking the call. Just uh, to note as well, another news headline, um, <clears throat> there has been uh, state funding from the large-scale infrastructure, sports infrastructure uh, fund for uh, plenty of projects across uh, different sports, but notably three GA stadiums. Uh, Waterford's Walsh Park received a near 100% increase, moving from 3.7 million to 7 million. Meads Park Tolton has been topped up by 2.3 million to 8 Point five, as they seek to modernise the outdated facility and Kildare Stadium in Newbridge St Connets Park which was out of use for matches this year due to works will receive an additional 1.1 million uh, now 6 million of funding nothing announced for loud though uh, interestingly um, OK short break to take then we chat tennis with Stephen Higgins RTE 2FM Game on on 2FM. Sponsored by Dove Men Plus Care. Upgrade to Dove Men 72-hour advanced deodorant. Tough on sweat, not on skin. Game on. Tennis. Now, as promised, Stephen Higgins from CrossCourtView.com joins me to look back on 2023 and all the tennis headlines. Let us dive straight in to the men's side of the draw, if you will. What caught your eye? What stood out in 2023 for you, Stephen? Well... Even at 36, Novak Djokovic is still the man to beat. Uh, he fell just one match short of a calendar Grand Slam, which still hasn't been completed on the men's side. So he won his 10th Australian Open, won Roland Garros again, and obviously won the US Open. Uh, lost an epic match with Carlos Alcaraz at Wimbledon in the final. Your favourite player, our favourite player. Big, big Carlos fan, yeah. Um, but there's still, Alcaraz I think proved his class in terms of he was right there with Djokovic for the number one ranking all the way through the season until Djokovic took it again. Djokovic has now surpassed 400 weeks as world number one, which is almost 100 more than Roger Federer achieved. Um, But we also have some, like Daniel Medvedev is still there, the former US Open champion. Yannick Sinner has been the kind of revelation on the tour of this season. He was always an excellent player, but he's moved on to the next level. And I expect him to be probably the next new major winner. Okay. The guys in the chasing pack. Big show. Big show. So we'll see if that does play out um, how you predicted on the women's side of things. Very exciting times on the women's side. Basically, Iga Shiantek and Rina Sabalenka went toe-to-toe all season. Uh, Sabalenka had her big breakthrough 
at the highest level by winning her first major in Australia and then becoming world number one. But Shantek, while she wasn't as dominant as last year with her huge winning streak, she still won six titles, still defended Roland Garros and then was excellent in WTA finals at the end of the season to clinch world number one again. So it's very exciting going forward with people like Elena Rybikina, the former Wimbledon champion. And then you had your surprise winner, Marketa Vondrasheva at Wimbledon and Coco Goff, who arrived as we expected, really, and as the US Open champion. Absolutely. Um, just to finish on, if you are a fan of tennis, get yourself down to Limerick in February because the Davis Cup is coming to Ireland for the first time in nine years. Yeah, first time since 2015 there'll be a home tie for Davis Cup. So Ireland will take on Austria. Uh, it is because they beat El Salvador in September. It's a big clash. Um, it's unlikely, unfortunately, that Conor Island side are going to be successful because you'll have possibly two top 100 players in Sebastian Offner and the former world number three Dominic Thiem. But it should be a great event at the University of Limerick. Uh, the tickets will be on sale. Uh, on Tennis Ireland site soon enough so people can keep their eyes peeled on that. Regardless of the result, it'll be a great occasion. Listen, Stephen Higgins, crosscourtview.com is the website to get all your thoughts. Thank you very much for joining us. That is all we have time for. Today's programme was produced by Ronan Lawler. Uh, Better Da Silva is up next with the new music show, so do stay tuned to 2FM. But from all of the team, for now, it is. Bye. RTE 2FM Game on on 2FM. Sponsored by Dove Men Plus Care. Upgrade to Dove Men 72-hour advanced deodorant. Tough on sweat, not on skin.